We come to our Bible reading, uh, and it's two, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We always ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to us. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's teaching. And we now just pray for Nick as he comes up, Lord, to expound these words and give us a greater understanding of what Paul was meaning to say to the Thessalonians and how it may apply to us today. Amen. Thanks, John. It's lovely to see you back up here. But we're turning to 2 Thessalonians. Keep that open uh, in front of you. It's on page 1189 in your book. It's a little short book. Um, have my PowerPoint up? And this comes hot on the heels, really, of 1 Thessalonians. So I wonder how do you feel um, when you're told something twice? And I guess the answer to that is it depends on the context, uh, and it depends on my character, and it depends what it is. 
If it's a bit of instruction, you're at work uh, uh, and somebody, somebody tells you something and you already know it, you just feel a bit resentful. I got that the first time, you didn't need to tell me again. Or it might be you're really struggling with it. And you think, oh, thank you, I, I really hadn't grasped what this was about. Or it could be a bit of news, somebody in the family's not well. And it's really important that you hear that the first time round, but then you hear it from another member of the family and then another member of the family, then another member of the family. And maybe you kind of slight, get slightly annoyed. Or somebody compliments you on something. You did that really well. You think, thank you. And you think, I can't get enough of that. But then when the sixth person says, you did that really well, you think there's a conspiracy going on here. Um, why do I look like I need encouraging so much? So it depends, doesn't it? Well, here in 2 Thessalonians, we have Paul writing a second letter maybe only a few weeks or months after his first letter, to this little church plant in Greece's second city. And I think that makes it more or less unique in the, in the New Testament. You can, you can check that up for yourselves later on. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians, but there was a letter in between that. We have 1 and 2 Timothy, not really about the same things. We have 1 and 2 Peter, again, uh, different subject matter. And we have 1, 2, 3 John. I guess John's always writing about love. Um, so you, you will always get that in all his letters and in his gospel as well. But nothing quite like 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And so why does Paul write then a kind of like just this matter of weeks or months later? Well, he writes because things haven't changed. They're still being persecuted. If you remember, which happened earlier on. So they need encouraging. They're still getting unsettled, and actually they've been deceived uh, by mistaken thoughts about Jesus' second coming, so they still need instructing. And some people are still being idle. You remember we talked about that? They're being busybodies rather than uh, busy among the church, so they need warning. These three things haven't changed. So Paul speaks again into these three areas that he's spoken in before, um, and he's encouraging them, but his language is a little bit more intense now. Um, you, you need, to, need to get a hold of this, particularly when we get towards the end of the letter and he's talking about those who, who are idle. So Paul writes again because things haven't changed. But actually, some things have changed. Just at the very beginning, some things have changed. The persecution's not changed. Don't know whether you remember the picture when Paul and Silas uh, were first in Thessalonica. Uh, some of the Jews kind of rounded up a mob. They got the renter mob out. Uh, the local yobs, and they tried to execute a kind of mob justice on, on Paul and Silas. And maybe they're still trying something like that. They're still threatening um, the Thessalonians, um, particularly those who would have been Jews who have left the synagogue. But what has changed is the Thessalonians themselves. They have changed. So the first two verses are, are Paul's kind of standard greeting. It's very similar to what he said before. But in verse 3, it says, We always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love of all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, he says, among God's churches, we boast about you, about your perseverance and faith. So their faith has grown. It's a word, it's a, it's a kind of, you know, Paul sometimes kind of almost makes up words. Uh, it's a word that doesn't get used very often. They, they've kind of hypergrown. And I'm going to say they've, they've hypergrown like one of Leslie's trombuccinos. 
so just to embarrass us slightly, which is one of those kind of, which I don't know whether you saw them in the, in the garden like a couple of years ago. They were like those squash that kind of grew in kind of saxophone shapes. They've kind of hypergrown. It's a word which means they've kind of grown organically, but they've kind of grown massively um, in their faith. How would that be seen? Well, he said in the previous letter that their faith was, was, uh, was leading to work. There was a kind of an outcome of their faith. Out of their faith, they, they did things. So that their faith has kind of grown like a massive squash. Um, their love has increased, he says as well. In fact, it's, a, it's abounded. Their love has spread. So if they've grown up, their love, their love has, has spread out. It's gone outwards. How would that be seen? Answer me that question. How would you tell that their love has grown? How would you tell that their love has spread? Surely because they would be uh, showing that love to a greater number of people and in deeper ways. So straight away, there's, there's a challenge. Has your faith taken on any new kind of expression in the last year or two. Let's kind of ignore those COVID kind of years, which were an anomaly, albeit a painful one, and they have kind of changed our, our, our faith, they've changed our lives. But over the years, let's go five years, 10 years, has your faith got any kind of new expression? Has your faith grown? That's what I want to ask you, it's a simple question. Has your faith grown? And if you want to say yes, well, what, was, what is the evidence that your, that your faith has, has grown? Because being a Christian is like being a plant. That's why Jesus, I think, uses all kinds of plant illustrations, doesn't he? Being a Christian is like a plant. You're either growing or you're dead. If you're static, by definition, you're a dead stick. You're either growing or you're dead. So I just want to ask you, what kind of has your faith taken on a new expression? What might that be? I've heard from a couple of people they've taken in Ukrainian refugees, something they've never done in their lives before. Um, it's a new expression of their faith. I'm not suggesting that's the right thing for everybody, but it was a new expression um, of their faith. Have you moved on to reading different kind of Christian book, maybe? So those people coming on to illuminate are reading systematic theology, which is probably something that maybe they've, um, they've never done before. That's great. It's a new expression of faith. Um, Celia, you know, maybe it's clearing out your wardrobe, isn't it? And, and, and kind of being a, um, an expression of your faith might be saying, I'm, I'm not going to buy new clothes um, and I'm going to give some money um, to people less well off could be something, you know, it doesn't have to be something massive. Or it could be you get in, into some new kind of Christian service or, or non-Christian service. I saw the people doing the, um, the litter picking and I thought, really, ought to, really maybe ought to do that. You can go, I can't remember what they're called, Stains Pickers. And then I haven't done it. We'll come back to things that you say you'll do and don't later on. Um, but where, what are the new expressions uh, of, your, of your faith? Are you bolder in your social media posts than you used to be? Do you own Christ? Or have you started a prayer list? Maybe you never had a prayer list in your life. 
And you think, right, I'm going to have a prayer list and I'm going to systematically pray for people. Have you got any new expressions of faith coming through? Is there anything other than the same old, same old? Now, there's a caveat here. Once you get beyond a certain age, and I'm not going to put a, I'm not going to put a date on it, uh, a time on it, but doing the same with less resources as you get advanced in years is growth. I count that as growth. Okay, where's the cutoff? 75. Okay, I don't know. It's different for different people, isn't it? But there comes a point where to do the same with dwindling, with dwindling physical resources um, is a kind of growth. I understand that. So there's a handful of people that are excused. Has your love grown over the years? Has your, has your love reached into new, new areas of, of the church? Actually, I think for some of us, we know our neighbours better than we did um, pre-COVID, or is it the same old crew? We talked about it back at the end of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul says, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. In other words, you, you should be aiming for the same level of intimacy with all the people across the church. Who are you ignoring? Who are you missing out? Why is that? And what are you going to do about it? That is evidence in this little church plant um, that God is at work, that the Holy Spirit is at, at work amongst them. So I think persecution kind of seems to act as a hothouse uh, for Christian growth and, and tolerance and comfort act as a cold shower or, or a refrigerator. And we still live in a remarkably comfortable, we live in a very comfortable situation. And we don't face that much persecution. So given that we're living in the fridge, we're not living in the hot house. How do we make sure as, as a plant that we grow? It's harder outside of persecution, I think. Well, I would suggest to you that you, you cry out to the Lord. Go back to the Lord today. Look at the cross and cry out to the Lord for conviction. Where do I need to grow? Am I really as godly as you would want me to be? Unless you're going to be proactive about it. See, under persecution, it forces you. Uh, into holiness. In comfort, there's nothing forcing you, nothing driving you. You have to drive this. And you have to cry out for conviction. We talked a few weeks ago about that bittersweet sense of the Lord's conviction. Um, when the Lord puts something on your heart and you see for the first time that there was something you're doing that is, you didn't realize and it was wrong. And I see a couple of people nodding like I did last time, but it looks like for the most of you, you never experienced that. Uh, and, and you should. You should cry out to the Lord for that. Will you please kind of come and uh, by your spirit and your word, touch my heart um, with that double-edged sword so that, so that I know where I need to grow. In the last 24 hours, I've had one of those moments that wasn't really bittersweet, it was just bitter. Where the Lord comes and cuts and you go, oh, oh, okay, Lord. I see you should be having those moments if you've got a living relationship with Christ. So, so some things have changed. The, the, uh, under persecution, the Thessalonians have changed. Um, but the persecution hasn't. Um, perseverance 
you see, and, and we would get this wrong. We have the next slide, thanks, Max. You see, we, like the psalmist, we think that trouble is a sign that God's judgment is faulty. We think that, that trouble is a sign that God's judgment is wrong. But Paul says all this, and by all this he means their perseverance under persecution, all this is evident that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. So the reality is this, the Lord, if you're a Christian today, the Lord has counted you, counted you worthy of the kingdom of God. He, he has credited to you um, the righteousness of Christ and he sees you um, as, as sons and daughters of Christ. It's a wonderful thing on account of the cross. And you've taken hold of that by trusting Christ. You look to the cross and say, yes, I want that. What's the outward evidence that you're a Christian, that God has counted you worthy? That you get trouble. That you get persecution. One. And two, that you, per that you persevere even though you get trouble. Those are the two signs that you're really a Christian. And so far from being a sign of God's faulty judgment, <clears throat> this persecution is, is a sign of God's good judgment. Um, far from being um, unjust, he is strictly just. I think this is the next slide. Sorry, Max, I know they're all a bit the same. Far from being unjust, God is absolutely just to the extent <clears throat> that he will pay back Trouble to those who trouble you. That's, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Who are the people that, that trouble you? Who are the people that, that cause you trouble for being a Christian? Call them to mind. And hey, maybe... There's nobody in that list. Maybe that's a bad sign. Maybe you've just not been open and honest enough about your Christian faith. But there are, there are many <clears throat> in the media and in power, so politicians making anti-Christian legislation, lobby groups lobbying them to do so, famous atheists kind of running down the faith all the time. There are people who, who, who trouble Christianity on that big scale. How do you feel about them? It's okay to feel uh, aggrieved. Or maybe in a moment, you, maybe you have a moment of a fantasy about arguing with them and, 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 and putting them down. But don't, you don't need to. The Lord has got this in hand. He will pay them back. Is that the picture of the Lord that you sits comfortably with you or sits with your usual picture of the Lord, the Lord will pay them back. Absolutely. Just not yet. So Paul says, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it's written. It's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
God will pay them back. Not yet. They'll be paid back when Jesus is revealed. Revealed. And Paul uses a different word here. In one Thessalonians, we talked about Jesus coming. His parousia in the Greek, Jesus' second coming, he's coming again. Now Paul calls it his apocalypsis, his, his revelation, his unveiling. And there will come a day when Jesus will be revealed by flames to be the God of burning fire. There was that moment last night, did you see it? There was a kind of lightning strike and then, and then the thunder came. That's just trivial. Um, Jesus will come in, in flames and be seen to be the son of, of the God of burning fire. He will be accompanied by, by angels, and he will be seen to be the God, the King of heaven. So he who is behind the scenes now, in control but behind the scenes, will be revealed, will be gloriously revealed. And on that day, these People who trouble Christians will be judged and they'll be judged on two criteria, that they don't know God and that they haven't obeyed the gospel. They don't know God. Do you really know God? It's perhaps the most important question you can answer this morning. Do you know him? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Do you know him enough that you've been changed, that you do what God wants? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you know God? Does he know you? So these are people who have not obeyed the gospel and the gospel is a simple escape plan. It's a, it's a simple message but it's a message that needs acting on. So we called it a, a, a lifeboat in a sinking ship. Fire escape in a burning building, a, a, a helicopter in the storm. The, the gospel is a rescue, a rescue message. It's a message that said, there is trouble. There is wrath coming for anyone who doesn't know the Lord. But there is a way out. There is an escape, and I know where the escape is. So even though people say to you, oh, I don't believe in religion, I don't have the time, that's not how I see life, we know, and we should say, you are in mortal danger, follow me. I know where the escape is. And we have to keep that, in, we have to keep that urgency in, in our own hearts and in our concern for other people, even though they say, I just, well, I just don't see it like that. Or something along those lines. The gospel then is an escape plan which needs acting on. So there's a danger that some of you here may have heard the gospel, but you're still not heading for the fire exit. You're still not in the boat. Still not um, in the helicopter. And that will be a terrible thing. You can't just say, oh, I believe in Christ. I believe in the cross. You have to, you have, to have taken the plunge. And said that I'm, I, I am um, trusting my, my future, my future before God in, in the cross. You have to take a step. It's a bit like standing on the top of a burning building. I'm just going to change the metaphor. And somebody's holding a blanket out. And they say, jump. 
And you say, well, I believe in the blanket. Well, that's not the point, is it? You jump and you trust in Christ. Because the danger is terrible and it is real. And Paul calls it everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. And as we read through the scriptures, what that, is, what that means is an ongoing physical experience of pain and distress. Without anything to mitigate it. So Paul says, doesn't he hear, that they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Can't be that the Lord is not there where these people go to because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Illuminators, you all understand this. Um, but they're shut out from his presence to bless. It's a terrible, terrible thought. We don't, we don't really understand as, as we go around every day that we have saving faith and we're showing saving grace by God as we trust in the cross, but God's common grace is everywhere. His, his, his goodness is everywhere. Um, in, in doctors and, and nurses and government um, and, and streets and homes and beds, um, God's common grace, God's grace is God's grace is, is everywhere and, and for these people it's going to be taken away. All grace is, is, is going to have been withdrawn with nothing to mitigate it. What's, think for a moment, what's the worst pain you've ever experienced? What's the worst experience of shame you've ever experienced? What is the worst experience of missing out that you've ever experienced? Magnify it by a thousand. Remove all mitigating factors. And now picture it going on for eternity. In other words, there is no end. This is the most terrifying part of it in this life. Sometimes we go through terrible troubles, but we know there will be an end. The other side of Jesus' return, whichever place you're in, there is no end. That day, terrible as it will be for some, will bring relief for Christians, relief for those who are trusting Christ. See, in this life, there are moments, aren't there? Psalm 23 moments where the Lord makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He, he restores our soul. But only when Christ is revealed will we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you get to be one of the relieved? Paul says, you believed our testimony to you. You believe the gospel. You believe the apostles' testimony. And on that day, Jesus will be glorified in us, Paul says. On that day, he'll be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. On that day, somehow Jesus will be glorified in us. And the commentators are all kind of 
a bit different about, about what that means. It means glorified by us. I think that's probably not quite right. It, it means that somehow we will reflect his glory when Jesus comes. Um, in, in Philippians, Paul says, when he comes, we will be made like him. So it's either that when Jesus comes, we'll have these new resurrection bodies, or, or maybe on, on the day he comes, we will look a bit like the transfigured Jesus. Um, we'll glow with the whiteness uh, of the glory of God, but I don't know. But we will marvel and wonder at Christ as we see him in person um, for the first time. So very briefly, there's an obligation. In, in the meantime, those who have been counted worthy because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us should start to look more like the righteous Christ. So Paul says, uh, we pray that you, God may make you worthy of his calling. And he says, by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire. Um, your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. What would it be like if your every purpose, that was, I think, back in the NIV84, I think your every purpose here, it says your every desire for goodness came to fruition. What would we be like? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? If all the things you thought about doing, or all about the good things you thought about doing actually came, actually, you actually did, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be transformative. Well, that's Paul's prayer. Pray that all your good desires actually become good actions. I think that's basically what he's saying. And your every deed prompted by faith might come to fruition, he says. So I, I, want all those, I want all those things you think about to become actions and all those actions to bear fruit. That's his prayer. It's a great prayer, and you can pray that. For your home groups, if you're a leader, for the church, if you're an elder, for everybody else, for your brothers and sisters, if you're a member of the church. Ultimately, it's all about glory. Jesus on that day will be revealed in all his glory. And his glory will shine in us. There will be some who are excluded for his glory. There will be many excluded from his glory. It's the last slide, Max. But for now, we want Jesus' name to be more glorified in us and by what we do as we grasp onto grace. We pray this so the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are already glorious, though we don't see it. We're looking forward to that day where you're revealed in all your glory, though it will be an awesome and in many ways a terrible day for those who have not believed. And we're amazed that on that day we will be changed to be glorious like you and to bring you, you glory. And in the meantime, we ask that we will grow like the Thessalonians did, grow in faith, grow in love, that we might bring you increasing glory in our lives now. And we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.